And our text this morning is Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. 28 to 40, it is the story of the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus Christ to Jerusalem. If you would please give attention to God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord, beloved, is completely sufficient for you and for me. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that you would reach us by your word and your spirit. Show us, O Lord, the great truth of your word, that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might know him, love him, and serve him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we have here this morning the scene of the coming of a king. It's actually similar in very many ways to the coronation of a king or a monarch. Jesus is not having a crown put on his head at this point, but he is being revealed to the city and to the world as a king. There is always a great deal of excitement and pomp that goes along with this. Isn't there? For some of us, we remember back to watching accounts of monarchs of England being 
installed, whether it was the queen or the prince or the marriage of of a royal family. There is an excitement that goes around it, and everyone wants to see what this is all about. Perhaps one of the most unique and startling incidents like this was the coronation of the emperor Napoleon. Napoleon decided that he would be the emperor of France after the king and the queen had been beheaded. And after a short period in which the revolution went on, Napoleon became in charge and he decided to be an emperor. And all of the accoutrements that would go along with that, you can't be an emperor after all and not have all of your brothers and sisters be dukes and duchesses, lords and ladies of every kind. And He invented a new seal of arms. He had a new crown designed by jewelers. And as the Pope came up to bring the crown, the Pope, who was a bit intimidated into participating in the event, Napoleon did something that was shocking at the time. He took the crown from the Pope and crowned himself. All Europe was aghast. No one does that. They don't make themselves a king. Here Jesus is coming into his own. But Jesus is not making that mistake. Jesus is being revealed as the king by his father. This was designed by God himself from before the beginnings of time. It was designed to reveal to us right before that most difficult time in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, before the torture, before the crown of the cross. And this morning we get to see who Jesus is in this glimpse of the King. We see first and foremost that He is a powerful Messiah. He is a Messiah who is powerful. We see, secondly, that He is a humble Messiah. And then third, we see that He is a kingly Messiah. Jesus revealed to His people as the Messiah. Well, let's begin then this morning by looking at Jesus as the powerful Messiah. Look with me, if you would, at verse 28. Luke tells us that when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. The very first thing that I want us to see in this text and to remember is that Jesus is in control. Now, this is an interesting story. It's one that I think many of us are very familiar with. And for us, this story takes on a life of its own. It's the Palm Sunday story. And and we think we know what's happening. And because our emphasis often is about children waving branches around, we think what's going on here is that Jesus is the victim of circumstances. That it's the crowd that is designing what is to happen. That Jesus is just simply out for a walk, and all of a sudden, events overtake him, and he has to go with the flow. What I want you to see here is that that's not the case. Jesus is actually in complete control. This is an absolutely deliberate movement by Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. Jesus 
has always been in control. He has been performing miracles like healing lepers and giving sight to the blind. He has been teaching the great truths of the kingdom. And just most recently, He has shown His great power to change hearts. To bring men and women to salvation. After all, He performed a miracle of this fashion by taking a wicked tax collector for the Romans, Zacchaeus, and making him a disciple. And now Luke tells us that right after he had spoken, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, when we speak of going up, we tend to think of going north, because our up and down is based on a map. That's not the case in the Bible. You see, Jerusalem, no matter where you came from, was going up, because it was the center of the nation, and quite frankly, it was up high. And so here we have Jesus approaching from the east, traveling west, and he is going to go up into Jerusalem. Now, you can imagine this is the time of the Passover, when pilgrims are on their way to Jerusalem to go to the temple, to offer sacrifices, to celebrate the high holy days of the year. We have reports that would say that Estimates of up to 2 million people would swell into Jerusalem for this Passover season. There would be hundreds of thousands of animals sacrificed in the midst. And now you can imagine as Jesus is coming from Jericho that he is a part of a huge crowd of pilgrims. A crowd of pilgrims that's grown even more as they come through Jericho and see what Jesus can do. There is a great buzz and excitement about Jesus. People are wondering what he is going to do, what he is going to teach. How will Jesus be at the Passover? These pilgrims are going to Jerusalem, and you have to understand, in their mind, they are focusing as much as they can on the Lord as their king. The Lord is their hope in the midst of Roman rule. The Lord is their deliverance in the midst of suffering. And we know that as the pilgrims went up into Jerusalem, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent. Literally, the songs we sing as we go up. And they would encourage one another by doing this. The Psalms of Ascent are Psalm 120 through 134. And you can imagine the excitement and the focus that they would have. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. And he answered me. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the Lord's house. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They will never be moved. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. These are just snippets from the beginnings of each of these psalms, so you can imagine the excitement and the focus that there would be. And in the midst of this, we see Jesus traveling. And He gives a command to His disciples. Look with me at verse 29. 
When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied. Untie it and bring it here. Now, Jesus is coming to a familiar area. The area of Bethpage and Bethany is a place where Jesus has been many times. Bethany is the hometown of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. So, the Bible tells us that not only did Jesus raise Lazarus there, he used to visit them often. It was kind of a home away from home for Jesus. It was a very lush and fertile area. Bethpage means land of figs. Of course, Olivet means Mount of Olives. And Jesus comes into this familiar area and he gives a very strange command. Go into the town and get this colt and bring it to me. Could you imagine being one of the disciples? You might look at Jesus and say, Why? Seems a little bit odd. Well, let me make it clearer for you. Here's what I would like you to do after the 11 o'clock service. I would like you to go from here and go to the Katie Mills parking lot outside the Bass Pro Shop and find a black BMW and bring it to me. Now, wait a minute. Pastor, are you serious? Won't we get in trouble? Really don't. Because you see here, there is the principle and the difference here. If this were me, you shouldn't listen to me. But they listen to Jesus. Why? Because he's in control. He's not just an ordinary man. This is not an ordinary command. There is something very specific about it. Jesus does this to us sometimes, doesn't he? He gives us commands that we don't understand. Wait. Why, Jesus? Because I said so. Go here. Do this. Do this very hard thing. And we want to know why. We want the reasons. We want to question Jesus. And what the text tells us here this morning is that Jesus is in control. And then when Jesus speaks, we must listen. Because you see, Jesus here is showing his divinity. This is a reminder that Jesus is in control because he is God. That's why you listen to Jesus when he talks to you. And not just everything that I say. You see, Jesus commands because he is God. And because he is the Lord God, he has a purpose. A purpose that is before time began. A purpose that is written in eternity. This is true for you and me, too. You see, Jesus has a purpose for Christ's church. We don't always know what it is, do we? Oh, yes, we know the broad parameters because He has spoken to us in His Word that we are to make disciples, that we are to be His ambassadors, that we are to love one another, that we are to preach the Word. We know the broad parameters, but we don't know the specifics yet, do we? I've got news for you. The fact that you are sitting in these chairs this morning is not random. I've got bigger news for you. It's not just because you decided on a whim to do it. 
The fact that you are here is because Jesus has purposed from all eternity by His eternal decree to gather to Himself a people with purpose for the glory of God. And that should be a great comfort. Because it's not all on us. When Jesus speaks to us, we can listen because we know He is trustworthy. He is powerful. He is a powerful Messiah. And this incident here gives us great comfort because Jesus knows things with such specificity, doesn't he? He says, go into this little village, the village that's so small it doesn't have a name in the Bible. And as you enter in, you will find a colt and it will be tied up there. How does Jesus know all of this? How does he know the location of the animal? How does he know that it will be tied up? Now, it's certain that it's tied up. Did you notice the emphasis that Luke makes of this detail? Have your eyes scan the passage and see how many times the word untied is used. It's five or six times. Luke wants us to understand that Jesus knows this very little detail. Jesus not only knows that there's a colt and not only knows that it's tied, he knows it's never been ridden. Think about that. He also knows how to get it. They come in and they say, the Lord has need of it. Because you see, Jesus doesn't doesn't just know circumstances and times. Jesus knows people too. Yes, beloved. This is not just some kind of parlor trick. You know how we see people who claim to be able to read minds. They go into a large auditorium and they say things like, someone here is sad. Who's sad? Raise your hand. Oh, you. Oh, you're sad because you're concerned about your family. Right? They give you these kind of broad latitudes that fit almost anyone in the whole building. No, Jesus is very specific. In this place, there will be a colt. It will be tied. It will never have been ridden. And they will ask you this and you will say that. Think about all of the detail there. Jesus knows when he declares his lordship to them, how they will react. It's very interesting because Jesus hardly ever in the Gospels refers to himself in his ministry as Lord. I don't know if you've noticed that. You may recall that his most favorite term for himself was the Son of Man. But here he uses the term Lord. It means Master, King, Monarch, ruler, it is a term rich with theological import. It is the word that is used to translate the unpronounceable name of God in the Old Testament. Jesus here is declaring his lordship, and when he does, how do the people react? If the Lord needs it, it's yours. Now let me ask you this question. Do you have that same attitude? Do you have that same attitude with your property? The Lord asks you to use your home for ministry. Will you? Your car. Your money. Your time. If the Lord declares that He needs you and your stuff for ministry, will you heed the call? Do you acknowledge that He's in control? Do you acknowledge that He is Powerful, do you acknowledge 
that He is your Lord and Master. That's what Jesus is telling us here in this instance. You see, there's a reason why before the cross, God is peeling back the veil, as it were, and showing us Jesus as King. It is to instruct us. The second thing we see is that Jesus is not only a powerful Messiah, He's a humble Messiah. What do we mean by this? Now, see the way that Jesus enters Jerusalem. It is kind of an unusual entry for a king, isn't it? We said that Jesus wants to show his kingship, that God is pulling back the veil, and he comes in on a donkey. No weight. A young donkey. A colt. A small donkey. Now, this doesn't make sense to us, does it? What we would expect is a grand show, wouldn't we? A huge, white charger. Clydesdales. Chariots. Trumpets. Here is Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, entering the capital of Israel. And there are college championship parades that are bigger than this. Why is Jesus doing this? You see, if we think about it, this is not what we want, is it? We don't want our Messiah wandering in on a young donkey, do we? We want Jesus the Messiah coming into America on an Abrams tank to set everything right, to tell people who is in charge so that everyone will bow and everything that we want done will be done Lickety-split, right? You see, that's what they wanted too. But Jesus is here showing that He is the Messiah. Not their Messiah, but He is God's Messiah. Matthew gives us some insight into this same incident. Matthew tells us in chapter 21 that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying... Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And Matthew here is, of course, quoting Zechariah, the prophet of the Old Testament, chapter 9, verse 9. Almost verbatim. And so what we have here is Jesus fulfilling a prophecy coming in on a colt. Now, I want you to understand something about prophecy. I think oftentimes we look at this and we view it as if Jesus had no choice but to do this because the prophecy said so, right? This is the kind of way hocus-pocus prophecy works in movies and on the TV, right? There's some sort of prophecy out there and we have to do it this way because why? The prophecy says so. But that's not how God works. For who gives the prophecy? God. You see, there is a purpose of God behind the prophecy. The prophecy comes because God wants it to be that way. You see, God has prophesied the Messiah coming in on a donkey, on a colt, because God has a purpose for showing His Messiah as one who is humble, who is gentle, who will lead His people with an eye toward their good. 
That's the purpose. And for that reason, it was prophesied. And for that reason, it was fulfilled. There is a spirit of gentleness about Jesus as He comes in. We have to understand that that comes first. The prophecy does not set the purpose. God is doing something here. Because you see, the people in this day, and if we're honest, the people in our day, want a Messiah who is a superman. Now maybe we can do without the cape and the big red S. But what we want is a superman. A Messiah who is like us, but more powerful and better. Who can do what we want when we can't. But you see, Jesus is not a superman. He is so much more than man. Jesus is God himself. And so as he comes in, he shows his humility and his gentleness. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus is coming to the most stressful week of his entire life. He knows what lies before him. Now, I don't have to be in your homes to know that when you are very stressed out, you snap at your kids. You snap at each other. You're angry. You're grumpy. You're not fun to be around. Do you want to know why I don't have to be in your house? Because I know that's what I'm like. Because I'm a sinner. You see... Jesus, in that way, is not like you and me. In the midst of the most stressful period of his life, he exudes gentleness and grace. He's thinking about others and their benefit, not himself and what he must endure, not what's fair to him, but what he must accomplish for you. This is who Jesus is. And he even lets the people participate in this entire revealing of him as the king. Do you see this? They get the donkey and they untie it. And in verse 35, they throw their cloaks on the colt because they would not have King Jesus ride without a saddle. They have nothing but their cloaks, so they use them. And then the people see and they begin to put their cloaks on the street so that the donkey can walk over them. Because, of course... This is what Jesus is worth. He's too good to simply walk down an ordinary street. Jesus lets the other people participate to see that he is the king. Isn't this a picture of what salvation is like? God is completely in control. God has a purpose from before the beginning of time. Jesus Christ provides salvation for His people. He completes the work and yet He brings it to us that we might personally exercise faith. That we might personally repent. That it might be a part of us that we participate in under the complete control and sovereignty of God. It is not the people's choice that Jesus is here. It is not the people's choice who Jesus is. It is not the people's choice that what Jesus is doing. But they are given the grace to be involved in the work that Jesus is doing. Jesus is a humble king. 
And we see this not just in how he enters. We see this in how he submits to the Father. Because all of this was a part of the Father's plan, wasn't it? This is coming to fruition. All of the strands are coming together at one point. And Jesus has never questioned the Father's wisdom. Now sometimes God's plan is not so easy to see. That comes to us, doesn't it? Will you follow your heavenly Father when it's not so easy to see what the plan is? Do you trust Him that He has a plan? That it is a plan for your good? That even in the midst of trial and temptation and difficulty, He is in control? You see, Jesus shows us what it is like to live a life of submission. Because after all, if Jesus were ever going to look for a shortcut, right now is the time, isn't it? Now is the time to change the plan. To be a powerful Messiah certainly sounds like a better plan than to be crucified, doesn't it? Human wisdom finds God so foolish. Even now, We might be tempted to argue with God. Look, this is working. They're about to hail him king. Why don't you just get flexible, God? But you see, there are no shortcuts to glory. If you would reach glory, if you would know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would know salvation by faith, you must daily trust the Lord by faith. You must daily deny yourself. You must daily make use of the means of grace. To be Jesus' disciple is to go day by day in following Him. It is not about one large single decision and then you forget about everything the rest of your life. It is about following Him step by step, stone path by stone path. This is how we follow King Jesus. It's a path of humility. It's a path our Savior has trod before us. Our Lord Jesus Christ here is not only a powerful Messiah, and not only is He a humble Messiah, He is also a kingly Messiah. He is a kingly Messiah worthy of a royal entry. Now wait a minute, Pastor. You just spent some time telling us about the donkey. And about how that was humble and not really that big of a deal, didn't you? Yes, I did. Let's get back to the donkey. The interesting thing is that the donkey was a royal symbol. You see, in the days of King David, the one who was the king rode on a donkey or a mule. It was afterwards, after they had moved away from God, after they wanted a man-centered view, after they wanted their pride to be stoked, after they wanted to be seen by others, that they moved to horses and chariots and show. David's royal mount was a mule. So much so that when David was about to die and there was conflict about who would succeed him. David wanted to make clear that Solomon would be the next king. And do you know what he did? We see in 1 Kings 1, verse 33. He told his servants, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own 
mule. David says, if you want to know who the next king is, see who's sitting on the donkey. Jesus is the son of David. You see, those who are in the midst of this would understand that. They would remember from their old, old Sunday school and vacation Bible days in ancient Israel, the prophecy of Zechariah 9. They would remember the flannel graph stories of David on the mule. And they would come back as adults and they would say, Jesus is a king. You see, it would go back to everything that they had learned, everything that they knew. And the response of this crowd follows from this. This is why they will not let him ride bareback. This is why they put their cloaks out for him to walk over. They give him the original red carpet treatment. Jesus is too worthy for anything less. The question then comes to you and to me. How do you treat Jesus? Do you view him as your Lord, as your king, who is not only your king, but who is worthy to be your king? Who is worthy to be obeyed? You see, it is not mere circumstances. It is the worth of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that drives all of this. And so we see in verse 37... They're even more involved. They begin to shout praise and to rejoice with God for all of the mighty works that He has done. You could just imagine the scene as this large crowd throngs in, as people jostle with each other to push each other out of the way to lay their cloaks down, and how they describe all of the great things that God has done. In my sanctified imagination... I see them praising God for the exodus and for David killing Goliath and for redeeming them from the Babylonians and for resettling them in here and then praising Jesus for healing the blind, raising the dead, making the lame to walk again. All of the great glorious works of King Jesus. And they declare him to be the king. Don't they? Look at verse 38. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now they're quoting Psalm 118 here. Let me read that to you and listen carefully. Psalm 118 said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you notice the change? Sometimes it's one word in the Bible that makes a difference. Do you see what they say? Blessed Not is he, but blessed is the king. You see, they have heard the prophecy, they have seen the word of God, and they have now seen it here fulfilled. And they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that remind you of anything else? Perhaps it would remind you of that declaration that came from the heavens as Jesus, King Jesus, came first to earth in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is well pleased. This is a royal entry because this is a great King. And there's a royal reality behind all of this. We see this in verse 39, 
Because even King Jesus here faces resistance, doesn't he? And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, isn't this how it always is? No matter what Jesus does, you can find a Pharisee or two to complain about it, can't you? They're everywhere. Here, they're probably pilgrims come in from other places. And they're upset about what's going on. Now, they're fellow traveling pilgrims. It says some Pharisees in the crowd, but the Greek is actually very precise. It says it's Pharisees who were out from the crowd say this, not saying it out of the crowd. They're bystanders. They're fellow travelers. They're, we might say, the peanut gallery. They are just hurling insults at Jesus. It could be because they're afraid. They're afraid of Rome. Clamping down on the claims of a king. But I think it's more than that. I think it's just an excuse. You see, they're offended that Jesus would be their Messiah. Because he's not the kind of Messiah they want. He's not who they want to believe in. And this is the way it always is, isn't it? They don't want to worship Jesus, do they? But it's more than that, isn't it? They don't want anyone else to worship Jesus either. Isn't that the way the world is today? The world does not want you to worship Jesus, but it it doesn't want anyone to worship Jesus. C.S. Lewis, I think, has put it best. For our day and age. They will tell you you can have your religion in private. And then they will make sure you are never alone. You see, they don't want anyone to worship King Jesus. But before your blood boils, before you get angry, before you worry about your rights, before you wonder what will happen, before the news headlines make you burn with anger, hear the words of Jesus. He simply looks at them and he says, if these didn't speak, the rocks would cry out. You see, Jesus says there is a reality to who he is that all the opinions of the world can never change. And beloved, that is as true in 2015 as it was in Jesus' day. The world can never change who Jesus is. Jesus is your king. He is the one who is in control. As one of my favorite old-time preachers has said, He's my king. They can't impeach him. And he ain't going to resign. Jesus is the king of kings. It cannot be hidden forever. Creation itself will cry out. The land will declare that Jesus is king. And that should give you great hope, Christian. Great hope in the midst of bad news stories. Great hope in the midst of persecution at work. Great hope in the midst of being made fun of at school. Great hope because Jesus is king. The question then comes to you today. Will you worship him? Because he is king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Let's pray.